How you doing, Paul? Oh, pretty good, thank you. Oh, we're glad to have you here today. How you doing? All is well, is it? All's well. <laughs> oh, good to hear. After a few technical difficulties, we finally got this going uh, on my side and yours. So thanks for your patience. Um, so, Paul, how about you introduce yourself? Uh, my name's Paul Watson. I'm the founder of the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, which I founded in 1977. So uh, it's now 42 years of operations doing anti-poaching uh, campaigns around the world. Yeah, well, it's, it's a very honorable thing. Um, you, you've been doing it for a while, so you could say you're an expert. Um, it's it's Captain Paul, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, Thomas, you had, you had something to say beforehand. Um, some of the in in the oh, US. Oh, I was reading up on you, and apparently the the ninth district U.S. court labels you guys as pirates. Is that correct? Which is ridiculous. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Alex Kaczynski, the uh, Ninth Circuit Court, he never talked to me, he never saw any evidence, and he made that judgment. But it's a little bit of a silly uh, judgment because there were never any charges against us. So it was basically really a judicial name-calling, the way I would put yeah. it. Uh, but we got our satisfaction because uh, two years ago, Alex Kaczynski was dismissed from the Ninth Circuit for sexual harassment. Okay, so uh, not a nice guy labeling you guys as being bad. Okay. He was a rabid anti-environmentalist. So uh, uh, it, it was an interesting court case because in 2011, Japan uh, brought us to court in Seattle to charge us. They wanted an injunction to stop our interventions against their operations in the Southern Ocean. And uh, the, the judge at the time, uh, Richard Jones, denied them their request on the grounds that they came into his courtroom with unclean hands because they're in contempt of the Australian federal court and refusal to pay a fine. So we thought everything was fine, and uh, that was in February 2011. And But uh, what happened was, as we had already left for Antarctica in December, uh, it was in 2012, and uh, suddenly the Ninth Circuit gave them their injunction without any, uh, any explanation as to why. So suddenly we found ourselves charged with 21 counts of uh, contempt of a federal court injunction. And uh, we ended up going to court in November of 2013, and Judge Peter Shaw acquitted us, uh, so that was fine. Except a year later, the Ninth Circuit Court, without even seeing the evidence, without even talking with us, overturned that uh, uh, con uh, acquittal and convicted us and fined us uh, damages, well, which the Japanese weren't expecting, because the Japanese, uh, the last thing they wanted was damages. And, and to us, that would have been 50, 60 million dollars, which we couldn't afford. It would have destroyed Sea Shepherd. But uh, Japan didn't want damages for a very good reason, because then they would have to open up their books and explain just what they were spending you know, money on. The fact that $30 million a tsunami relief fund went to the whaling industry. Uh, so um, they said, no, no, you just have to pay our legal fees, which is $2.5 million. So we paid that, and, uh, and the next day we took them to court in the U.S. because they brought it into the U.S. courts and charged them with piracy for the destruction of one of our vessels. And uh, now they were faced with a dilemma. They had to, uh, they had to open their books, <laughs> which they refused to do. So they were facing a contempt charge themselves, and then we made a deal with them um, that uh, the injunction would only uh, be against Sea Shepherd USA, which allowed all the other Sea Shepherd groups around the world to continue to intervene against their operations. But also they had to return a significant amount of money uh, to us. So in, in, after a few years of fighting it, we did win finally. Yeah, well, power to use. Because uh, that just seems to be pretty pretty out there, pretty ridiculous. Um, <laughs> you're hardly the bad guys in fairness and you're getting labeled as like pirates. Well, right. we end up we end up going to court in a lot of occasions, but we have won every time. Uh, you know, in 2011, I um, found an illegal um, tuna fishing operation off the coast of Libya. It was a Maltese company, and uh, we cut open their nets and released 800 tuna. And uh, a year later, I was in Scotland, and uh, I was uh, my ship was arrested by the British court, and I had to put a 700,000 pound bond down to release it. And then we went to court. They charged us with uh, destruction of private property, the nets of the poachers. And when we pointed out that this was an illegal operation, they said, that's irrelevant. It's private property and you uh, destroyed it. So anyway, we went to court and we won. And uh, then uh, they appealed it. The lawyer for the company said, we'll just throw money at Sea Shepherd till we destroy them. And they went to the uh, appeal court and they won. And then we took it to the Supreme Court and we won. And they ended up paying us a million and a half dollars. And we, so we ended up uh, winning in the long run. 
So you're fairly familiar with the courtroom. Fair play. <laughs> I mean, the courtroom's just an extension of the battles that we do on the high seas. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of kind of a dodgy thing, like the, the illegal fishing that, that this be going on. Uh, sure, we, we know it's just living in Ireland. Uh, we've we've a problem with um people fishing in our waters, and you know you you're, you're going out there on the front line like trying to stop these lads. Um, you ever been like, ever felt like you're actually in some serious danger or? <laughs> well, we've been in serious danger for forty two years, really. But I'm proud to say we've never lost anybody. We've never had any of our people injured, and we've never caused uh we've never killed or injured anybody else. So. Uh, we're, you know, quite proud of that that record. What we've done since uh, 2015 is we've uh, evolved to the point where we're now in partnerships with uh, numerous countries, Africa and Latin American countries, where we provide the resources and the crew and the ships, and they provide the authority and the enforcement. So uh, over the last year, we've um, arrested 65 poaching vessels in the waters of West Africa, six in the last week, actually. And uh, I think because of our interventions uh, working with Mexico, we've prevented the extinction of the vaquita porpoise. So uh, these partnerships are growing. We're getting invited by countries. Uh, right now, we're with Peru, with Panama, Colombia, and uh, Mexico, and also with uh, countries like Liberia, Sierra Leone, Tanzania, Namibia, Cabo Verde, and Gabon, and the Gambia, and amongst others. And I the think that's shebang. how. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you use you, it mental out there like you know that's not something that uh i'd like to watch videos of it but i wouldn't want to be part of it it does look scary well we have uh grown so i think we're now the we're certainly the largest uh marine conservation navy in the world uh with with 11 ships and uh, soon to be more and uh in fact we're bigger than um, the navies of many countries really but we don't carry weapons ourselves. Uh, I've always said that the most powerful weapon is the camera, so we do carry those. But we do carry enforcement officers on board in our partnerships. But outside of territorial waters, we operate under the guidance of the United Nations World Charter for Nature, which allows for non-government organizations and individuals to uphold international marine conservation law. I'll pretend I know what that is. <laughs> but um, what, what made you want to like start this company? It was you who started, right? Yes, well, uh, I was a co-founder of Greenpeace. I was the youngest co-founder of Greenpeace in 1969, and I was with Greenpeace till 77, but uh, it was very frustrating because Greenpeace is a protest uh, organization, and I don't like protesting. To me, it's very submissive. Uh, it's like, please, please don't kill the whales, and they do it anyway, and you just hang banners and take pictures. So I set Sea Shepherd up as a to intervene as an anti-poaching organization. And with a specific strategy uh, I established, which I call aggressive nonviolence. Uh, so we're very aggressive, we don't, but we don't hurt anybody. And uh, as a result, we've managed to shut down literally hundreds and hundreds of illegal activities around the world. Well, <laughs> again, power to use. Um, yeah, because I don't, it sounds like it's, it's really hard to track because the ocean's like so big. So how, how, how do you know that they're doing some dodgy stuff out there? Like, how, how can you tell it's not just a normal, you know, Joe Schmo, uh, like, legal fishing boats well we monitor these situations also uh we have satellites that are monitoring them um, um you know the uh, a lot of these vessels carry uh, ais devices for instance we set up an ais uh, network on the galapagos islands so we can uh, see and identify every vessel within 60 miles of, uh, of the galapagos islands and if they don't have an AOS signa ais signature then we go out and intervene because then they're that's a suspicious uh, uh activity uh, so finding these illegal operations is not that difficult. Um, you know, fi finding ways to uh, to stop what they're doing is a little more difficult, but we've managed to uh, to do that quite well. Yeah. Well, you you were saying beforehand, like the the number you've stopped, so you know <laughs> you're doing a good job. But um, you know, the re the reason you you came to um, I guess the RIs was to see conspiracy, and you you were saying beforehand that that, that took a long time to make. I think Ali and Lucy Tabrizi were working on this film for about five years, and uh, we helped uh, produce it. We put money into it to help make it. And uh, so they did a lot of interviews, traveled around the world. It was a risky endeavor, but uh, I think they did the best they could on it. It was a big, it's a big story, and you've got to pack what you can into, into 90 minutes. 
And the reason I think it's been successful is that it's presented as their story. And I think the most successful documentaries are the ones that are people's stories, whether that be Sharkwater by Rob Stewart or the recent Academy Award winner, uh, my, uh, my Octopus Teacher. It, it's the stories of those filmmakers. Yeah, um, it, it has been a story, definitely. We um, Obviously, you can do a bit of research on it, uh, so we, we did. And one thing that did surprise me was the pushback to the film, because like the Thomas, we were checking beforehand, like the top three things. If you look up Seaspiracy on YouTube, like the top three videos is a guy, I have no idea who he is. He says he debunks it. There, he calls it like a vegan. What, what do you call it, Thomas? You told oh. me about this. Oh, of course, I can't remember the, the right. It was like some kind of propaganda thing. Something and like that. Some, oh. some, we were expecting the pushback. I mean, the yeah. seafood industry is a billion dollars, uh, you know, multi-billion dollar industry. Of course, we're going to get feedback on it. Mm-hmm. But we're not concerned about that. That kind of, that just provokes controversy. Controversy provokes thought. People are talking about it. People are thinking about it. And uh, quite, you know, everybody's saying, well, you know, the film, uh, you know, is not factual. But they don't point out where it's not factual. <laughs> they just say it's yeah. not factual. And but you know the uh, seafood industry has an army of uh, what I call biostitutes—that is scientists that who are in their employ. You can always find biostitutes. Yeah, you can. That is always, just. <laughs> you can always find scientists who will side on either side of an issue. I mean, climate yeah. change is a good example. You know, there'll be scientists who are, are deniers, and then scientists who are supporting it. So you really can't uh, criticism from scientists uh, has to be measured by looking at well, follow the money. Who's paying them? Yeah, because there, there was also um, marine biologists and other scientists doing, like debunking as well, which made me wonder, like, is it really that bad? Like, people ha- are, or is it like really that controversial? And, like, if, if you're in marine biology, like, there's some various, very obvious things going on, ha- ha- like, that are climate-related or, you know, because we're, you know, messing up the place. H- how can you sit there and just make some kind of video trying to debunk it? Like, it, it seems like... You know, we are the problem. It's being pointed out. You don't like it, you don't like it, but it's very true. Well, when your paycheck comes from a fishing company, then you're going to find ways to uh, debunk the film. <laughs> That's actually a good point. I think That's something lot... he actually covered in the documentary, wasn't it? One of the, uh, was it the Dolphin Tick Company, or I can't remember, Dolphin Safe Company, weren't they being paid for by a... Uh... Well, you know, Earth Island Institute, they, they do some good work. There's, uh, you know, uh, I, I wouldn't want to <clears throat> put them down. But Mark Palmer in, of Earth Island Institute himself said that there's no way to guarantee that dolphins are not killed uh, on the, for catching uh, tuna and calling it dolphin safe. He said that himself. So it's not nobody's putting words into his mouth or anything. Um, and that's a fact. Um, and the Marine Stewardship Council, again, uh, they refused to be interviewed for the film. And, uh, you know, they had their opportunities to present their side, but they, they just refused to be interviewed for the film. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is one of those those topics, like, you don't really want to, if you're in that business, you don't want to talk about it. Um, which is kind of kind of clear. Like, you, you see, like, a lot of pushback from, like, in, in the documentary when they, were, when they were filming people or, you know, they were catching them for doing, like, illegal dodgy stuff. They, uh, a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of hands pushing the camera away. Yeah, and I actually said, I've said to the critics, I said, well, tell me where it's not factual. I mean, give me some examples. And I just get generalizations. Yeah. One of the things I said, well, you know, Dr. Boris's worms, uh, worms study that uh, the fishing industry collapsed by 2048 isn't accurate because further studies showed that, in fact, uh, it wasn't accurate. And uh, in fact, it would, it would only be reduced by 88%. And I'm going, Oh, wow, that's an improvement. 88% collapse instead of 100%. So it really doesn't matter whether it collapses by 2048 or 2078. The fact is, is it's collapsing. There are, are no sustainable commercial fishing operations anywhere on this planet. Now, the fishing industry would like you to think that when you go into a restaurant and get fish or get your fish and chips or whatever, they would like you to think that there's a bunch of hardworking people out there on their small little boats, you know, casting their little nets and their little lines and hauling in that fish and, and bringing it to you. But the reality are super trawlers and uh, 100 mile long long lines, 100 mile long gill nets, giant purse saners, giant bottom draggers. 
yeah. highly industrialized corporate fishing operations. Th these are not little guys. This is a, this is all short-term investment for short-term gain. Some of these vessels are well over $100 million to build, and that means that they're in debt to the banks, and the, the more in debt they have, the more fish they have to pull from the ocean yeah. to pay off that debt. Now, who's really being threatened by this are artisanal and indigenous fishermen around the world in coasts of Africa or India or South America and everything. These people are going down and plundering their waters. The reason we have piracy in Somalia and an emerging piracy in the Gulf of Guinea is because the real pirates, the Asian and European fishing fleets have gone down there and stolen everything and drove these people into poverty, forcing them into piracy. So, uh, you know, it's a lot more complex than what people think. I mean, the Norwegian uh, fishing industry went down and scoured the coast of India, put over a million uh, fishermen out of work in the coast of India over the last 30 years, and nobody mm. really talks about that. So they don't really care about fishermen. <laughs> you know, it's just propaganda for the corporate fishing industry. There's a, something similar in Ireland um, with, the, with the peat bogs, and I can kind of relate it to it, but the peat bogs, are, you know what peat is? Yes. So it's like this carbon-rich, it doesn't know it's a big car, it's carbon-rich dirt, basically. We've been burning it for thousands of years, but it recently became like illegal to harvest. There's limits on, on the harvest, whichever is going on at the moment, it is set to be illegal. Um, and that's because of big corporations like mining the F out of the, the, the resource and making it so like, if we go anymore, it's gone. So I can kind of relate that to with the fishing, like, like the three of us go on a fishing trip, no bother. We catch maybe four fish between us. And maybe you get a big one because you're more experienced with fish. And then the super trawler goes by, catches 3,000, 4,000, 5,000. And, you know, you know, they limit like what me and you can do um, in terms of, of our fishing. Um, when it's the, you know, the big corporate lad kind of making the mess for everyone. And it, there are Dutch super trawlers that are, are are plundering the waters off ireland yeah there's a lot of them doing off the coast of ireland but um in fairness it's like the spanish ones are allowed in a certain area because we sold the rights or whatever to that area and then they kind of get caught when they go outside of it um but yeah we we kind of get mauled it's the only reason we have a coast guard it's for like the stopping the uh illegal fishing well they shouldn't be selling the rights to the water uh, to to fish in, in irish waters in the first place yeah, I I really questioned that one ever since I, I learned about it. Like I was I was fairly young when I when I found out about that, and I was like, what, what, why? Because then they found out that there was there's like gas and so on over there, so they kind of regretted it too. So, there you go. Yeah, it, it's it's a really weird, weird industry. Yeah, in all these cases, you just have to follow the money. Why would uh, the Irish government uh, give fishing rights to the Spanish? money has to exchange hands it, it certainly isn't in, in the interest of irish fishermen certainly not in the interest of irish people uh the profits that are made from the selling of the fishing licenses go to the government and uh i'm i'm certain as in, in many countries i can't say for sure about ireland but in many countries there's a lot of uh, mo that money's going into particular pockets of certain politicians oh you don't have to yeah. convince us that the irish government is corrupt oh my god dude we had some <laughs> Well, that's, that's a different story. That's like a pretty well-known thing at this point, right? That's yeah. like saying water's wet, man. <laughs> it's seriously that bad here. Um, like, we have like one of our political leaders from like the last, what was it, the last Taoiseach we had? Yeah. Like he's under investigation still, but and like can... they they know he did it. Yeah. Yeah, he but like uh, private confidential files, for and he gave it to like a private health company or something. Who was his friend? So it's like. Yeah, at least he's he's still second in command. He'd be like the vice president over here. Mm. It's crazy. Pretty weird, to be honest. Like, uh, it's 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 weird. But yeah, like corrupt corrupting's a big thing. Um, I'm sure you you've had to deal with it. Like you were saying about Japan at the start. Um, but if they open up the books, there'd be a lot of a lot of dodginess in there. Yeah, and uh, you know where we're working in Africa and Latin America, of course, corruption is a major problem. Well, yeah, unfortunately, that that's the case. Um, we boarded one. We boarded one vessel off of uh, one of the African nations, and uh, the Chinese captain immediately went down below. And he came up, opened up a box, and pulled out eight thousand dollars in cash and put it on the chart table, uh, expecting the officer to, uh, you know, just accept it and go on his way. 
but we were there with them and we're not corruptible in that so uh and the cameras came out so the officer looked at the captain and said mm, now you're under arrest for bribery and so that was they was quite surprised at that <laughs> so it's a very common practice but if, if it's that common of a practice you have to wonder like how often do they just whip up the eight, eight grand and it's just all right see you later it's 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 that's what happens most of the time. And if they can give a bribe that a bribe that big, how much how much money are they pulling in? Well, you can imagine. Well, they're pulling in incredible amounts of money. But and uh, like for instance, um, was it uh, Sierra Leone? They, the fine for uh, illegal fishing was like ten thousand dollars. That's that's like a day's worth of business. Uh, so we were able to get the Sierra Leone government to increase that fine to one point five million dollars, and so that's making a big difference. On that we have to they have the penalties have to get uh, stiffer but you can understand uh, you're a boarding officer you're in the military whatever you board uh, one of these fishing vessels you're making a hundred dollars a month and somebody offers you five thousand uh, dollars that's pretty attractive and so that's that's one of the problems uh, yeah it, it is a problem but poverty is, an, is also a problem so you know your your morals are kind of when, when you're kind of like stuck for money your morals might go out the window. Like, okay, yeah, I, I, I could go and say this guy is doing bad or I can take eight grand and be in my merry way. It's understandable that they would accept those bribes. But what is really unforgivable is politicians who take um, huge bribes in order yeah. to... They're to not exactly in poverty. And they're selling out their own country. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And have I it, literally what Ireland is actually at our seas. There you go. <laughs> um, so... How how bad do you think the corruption is in the areas like you patrol and you take care of? Like how how serious of an issue is it? Well, cor corruption is a worldwide problem. Everywhere you go, you're going to find that problem. Well, the like other problem, particularly where you are. What's that? Like particularly where you are. Well, Africa, uh, yeah. Asia, Indonesia, South America. Yes, it's a big problem. All, all of those places. The other thing that the film illustrates is the um, that uh, the fishing industry is. Uh, a big supporter of slavery and a lot of these people working on these vessels are virtually slaves they're paid nothing or paid very little and that's even including the united states for instance american fishing boats come into honolulu uh, for re resupplies but the crew can't get off the boats they're confined to the boats because they only get 300 dollars a month uh, but the american fishing industries who operate the boats are making like literally hundreds of thousands of dollars off of their labor so it's uh, this slavery comes in two forms, very low paying jobs or else absolutely no pay at all. And uh, then you have the other problem when observers go on board these vessels, a lot of observers have uh, disappeared, mysteriously fallen overboard, that kind of thing. So there's a lot of murder. There's a lot of slavery. There's a lot of corruption. There's a lot of violence uh, in this uh, fishing industry. Uh, have you seen like slavery on these ships? Yes, we have actually. We uh, chased the um, the uh, vessel, the poaching vessel Thunder, from the coast of Antarctica. It's the longest pursuit of a of a poacher in maritime history, 110 days. Uh, chased them all the way to the waters of Equatorial South West Africa, and uh, the captain of the Thunder sank his own vessel right in front of us to destroy the evidence, uh, and he had no place to go. So we boarded the sinking ship to get the evidence, and uh, he ended up going to prison for three years, plus two of his officers went to prison. But we rescued all of the crew, including 42 uh, crew members who were repatriated back to uh, Indonesia. And uh, uh, they weren't slaves, but they were paid a pittance for their labor, and they couldn't really go yeah. home. They didn't have any choice, and the captain held their, held their papers and that. And uh, so when, when, we, uh, when we, we took... Uh, took it over and rescued the crew, we got all the passports from the captain and distributed them to the uh, each crew member so that they were finally free to, to, to depart. Dude, that's, that's pretty heavy stuff. Does that, does that ever like get to you? Uh, what do you mean by get to me? <laughs> well, I mean, like if you see tragedy, you know, you're not going to be in the best of form. No, I think you have to compartmentalize. You have to be detached in a way in order to, you know, we've been doing this for over four decades. And uh, so, you you know, you get used to all of that part. You focus on on, on solving the problem. You, you don't get too concerned or, or depressed over the details on that. Uh, you know, I learned a long time ago, um, uh, 
you know, way back in 1973, I was a, a medic for the, um, a volunteer medic for the American Indian movement during the occupation of Wounded Knee in South Dakota. And uh, we were surrounded by, they were surrounded by about 3,000 federal agents who were shooting at us and they, they, they wounded 46, killed two. And I went to Russell Means, who was a leader of the American Indian movement. And I said, we don't have any hope of winning here. Uh, the odds against us are overwhelming. So what are we doing here? And he told me something which has stayed with me forever. He said, well, we're not here because we're concerned about the odds against us. We're not here because we're concerned about winning or losing. We're here because it's the right thing to do, the right place to do it, and the right time to do it. He says, don't worry about the future. Focus on the present. What you do in the present will define what the future will be. And that's what we have to do. We, we, we don't get depressed about the possibilities or the possible consequences. We focus on doing what we can in the present. That's pretty deep. That is, that's pretty, pretty, pretty serious. But what, what, what is that you're, you're talking about, though, that historical event? Well, in 1973, the American Indian Movement occupied uh, Wounded Knee, the town of a uh, village Wounded Knee in South Dakota, to uh, get them to uphold the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty, which guaranteed all those lands to the uh, Lakota. And, um, of course, the you know, U.S. government's broken every treaty it's ever made with indigenous people. So that was an attempt to, uh, you know, to get them to abide by the treaty. And uh, so the struggle for indigenous rights in the Americas, you know, North, all North and South America has been a long and steady one. We're, we work very closely with a lot of the indigenous communities. We fly the flag of the, of the Iroquois Confederacy, which was given to us by the Mohawks. We fly the flags of the Maori from New Zealand and the flag, uh, the Aboriginal flag from Australia. Uh, we believe that um, the key to survival is the recovering this biocentric point of view, which indigenous people have this understanding that we're part of everything. We're not dominant over everything. We're not more important than everything else. And only by learning to live in harmony with the natural world are we going to survive. Yeah, that's something that's fairly relevant to something we talk about a fair bit, permaculture and um, as, as a whole, regenerative agriculture. You got to work with it. We've been working against it for so long and we see the consequence. We look back mm -hmm. on even what we would consider the most primitive people on the planet like, like the most primitive societies that they would they would seriously like take care of their stuff they'd never over hunt they'd never over harvest and then they also have like food forests or the likes like they they, they live well it's like remaining part of their their i guess their ecosystem well if for a species to survive any species you have to live in accordance with the basic laws of ecology and there's three basic laws the law of diversity that the strength of an ecosystem is dependent upon diversity within it the law of interdependence that all species within an ecosystem are interdependent with each other and the law of finite resources that there's a limit to growth and a limit to carrying capacity and when we steal the carrying capacity from other species we contribute to the diminishment of both diversity and interdependence and uh, that that really doesn't bode very well for us. I like to look at it this way. You look at the Earth uh, for what it is. We're a spaceship. We're on this incredible voyage around the Milky Way galaxy, and every spaceship has a life support system. That life support system gives us the air we breathe and the food we eat and regulates climate and temperature. And that life support system is run and maintained by a crew, a crew of species on this planet, which doesn't include us. We're passengers. We're having a wonderful time having a, amusing ourselves. But what we are doing is murdering crew members. We're killing them off. And there's only so many crew members you can kill before the machinery begins to collapse. Since 1950, we've seen a 40% diminishment in phytoplankton populations in the sea. Phytoplankton provides up to 70% of the oxygen in the air we breathe. The reality is that if phytoplankton disappears from the sea, we die. We don't live on this planet without phytoplankton. We don't live on this planet without bees and trees and fish and worms and microbes, you know. And so the more we poison them, the more we destroy them, the more we um, advance ourselves towards our own uh, extinction. So that's why we have to learn to live in harmony with them. You know, a couple of years ago, I got a call from a reporter from the Fox Network in the U.S., a Brett Hume, his name is, and he says, I heard you say that uh, worms and trees and bees and fish are more important than people. Did you actually say that? I say, yeah, I said that. He said, how can you say anything so outrageous as to say they're more important than people? I said, well, I said it for a very simple reason. They're more important than we are. They can live here without us. We can't live here without them. Ecologically, they're far more important than we are. We need them. They don't need us. So that makes them more important. I really like that comparison with the spaceship.
never thought about it like that. That was really smart. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I argue um, with your, your last point there. The capability of a human is a lot more than that of a like a worm or something like we could how many trees really? could you if you really wanted to go how many trees could you plant if a tree wanted to you know like it does trees its seeds do, it, its lifetime trees do very well trees do very well planting themselves <laughs> yeah but like you can do it better still do they uh, can they can they put it in the soil sure can they can but that's what they do is they use other animals squirrels and everything uh you know elephants help plant trees uh there's so many species that move those seeds around uh for instance when you know when dutch sailors went on to the island of mauritius and wiped out the dodo bird they also put a death sentence on calvaria major which is a a, a, a particular tree a mulberry tree uh, because the only way the Calvaria major could uh, reproduce was to have its seeds pass through the gizzard of the dodo bird. So when you wipe out one species, you set in uh, a chain reaction which wipes out many others because they're all interdependent with each with each other. Yeah. So uh, when one species collapses, it has repercussions. And um, you know, if we want to uh, if we want to save ourselves, we have to protect the life support system of the planet and all the crew that operate and maintain that life support system of the planet. We also have to understand just what is this planet? We call it the earth, but it isn't. It's the ocean, it's planet ocean. And it's not the sea. Everybody thinks the ocean is the sea, but this, the ocean is bigger than that. The ocean is water in continuous circulation. Sometimes it's in the sea, sometimes it's in ice, sometimes it's underground, sometimes uh, and it's always in the cells of every living plant and animal. So the ocean is us, the ocean moves through us. And every part of that ocean is interdependent with each other, uh, with every other part. So we are the ocean. And uh, this is all about protecting ourselves from ourselves, really. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate <laughs> we're, at, we're at a point like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it gets really dreary when we have these conversations with people. When we, whenever we talk about like the environment, and we do it a lot as well, it is rough. Like we we had a guy on there a couple of days ago, I think maybe three or four, Samuel Goodman, and he wrote a book called Beyond Carbon Neutral and how we can be, you guessed it, beyond carbon neutral. Now, like we can go beyond that, we can even be like, you know, taking the excess carbon we put in the air and blah blah blah. And uh, yeah, it got it got the same kind of dreariness as what we're going through right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, nature's laws will take care of of everything. Uh, we just have to leave it alone. Um, you know, for thousands of years, the shamans in uh, Polynesian cultures had a thing called kapu. Uh, that meant they would declare, say, a bay in Bora Bora or Hanama Bay in Hawaii, and they would say this area is kapu, which meant that if anybody was caught fishing in there for, say, 20 years, it was a death penalty. And people say, well, that's a little extreme, you know, the death penalty for fishing. But not from their point of view, because they knew that if the fish disappeared, they would die. Their entire culture depended upon fish being there. So they needed those kapu laws. We have no kapu laws anywhere in the world today. The fish have no place to hide, no place to recover from us. You know? And uh, you know, Rayathon, the fish finding company, the model for their particular piece of machinery for fish finding is called the fish can run, but they can't hide. And that's the problem. We will vacuum them out of every corner of this planet if we can make money off of it. Yeah. And it's and gorgeous. as one population collapses, we just simply move on. Northern cod has collapsed. Orange Ruffy has collapsed. There is no sustainable commercial fishing operation anywhere on this planet today. Nowhere. What do you think of um, fish farms? Because that's like the, that's the main employer for Irish uh, marine biologists. Fish farms are also part of the problem, and I'll tell you why. One is that um, you have to catch an awful lot of fish to make the pellets to feed those fish on the farms. <laughs> Uh, estimated about 70 fish caught from the ocean to raise one fish on a farm. Fish farms are very polluting, not just with the fecal material, which actually pulls oxygen from the environment around it, but also it's an intensive industry with antibiotics and chemicals. And those chemicals all leach into the ecosystems around that. Do you know when you buy um, a farm-raised salmon that you, you, when you raise a farm-raised salmon, the meat or the flesh of that salmon is a dirty white. Nobody's going to buy that. In order to get the um, the color I've heard in, of this actually, yeah, yeah, in order to get that color in, because salmon get that color from eating krill in the open sea, but to get that color in, they have to put dye into the food pellets to artificially dye the meat while they're still alive, 
And of course, because they're in such concentrated areas, they have to have antibiotics in order to keep this disease going. But what the problem is, is that now allows viruses from those confined spaces to go out into the environment and threaten other species. So in British Columbia, for example, in Canada, seven species of indigenous salmon are being threatened by an invasive species, the Atlantic salmon, which is kept in these concentration camps, these aquatic concentration camps. It's an extremely destructive industry. Don't they do the same thing to beef? Don't they dye like beef once it's to give it its red color or something? Probably not in the same way. Yeah, they do actually. I mean, if you go to a, you go to a, say a, a butcher shop in Brazil or something, in places you'll see that the color of the meat is like grayish, greenish, you know, horrible looking thing. So yeah, they inject uh, dye into it. They also uh, put it in uh, baths of uh, chlorine bleach in order to keep uh, you know the microbes from from going into it. it you know, isn't that relevant to where you are as well? And I like the practices. Like, because like, it you know we don't all like treat meat the same way across the world. No, but in, in fairness, overall, overall, sixty-five billion animals are killed in the meat industry every year, which is the single greatest contributor to greenhouse gases, single greatest contributor to groundwater pollution, single greatest uh, contributor to dead zones in the ocean is a, is the meat industry. And, uh, you know, look, there's just simply no room on this planet for 8 billion, soon to be 10 billion, soon to be 12 billion meat-eating, fish-eating primates. It's a it's world out of balance. About 40% of all the fish taken from the sea is fed to pigs and to chickens and to domestic salmon. Chickens eat more fish on factory farm. Chickens eat more fish than all of the puffins and albatrosses on the planet. Pigs are eating more fish than all of the seals in the North Atlantic Ocean. Uh, this is a world out of balance. Yeah, but it's uh, be a very complex way to get back to balance, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, if we, if we don't solve the problem, then the, the then nature's laws will solve it for us. Mm -hmm. uh, what we're seeing right now, actually, with COVID nineteen, is interesting. You know, because in nineteen ninety five, Laurie Garrett wrote a book called uh, "The Coming Plague," and uh, she predicted all of this, but we ignored it for the for the most part. We ignored. AIDS for a while, then we ignored Ebola, then there was West Nile virus and hantavirus and uh, SARS and SARS. The problem, the thing with COVID-19, it suddenly hit everybody and especially hit Western people. <laughs> and suddenly we wake yeah, up. That's the thing as well. Like no one and gave so, a fuck until yeah. it hit the West, basically. Yeah. So then we set up and take notice. But why is this happening? Because of the diminishment of ecosystems and diminishment of species. Viruses, there's millions of viruses around. Every plant and animal has viruses is associated with it. Those viruses are very beneficial for the most part. But when you diminish a species, that virus associated with that species or that ecosystem has to go somewhere. And 8 billion humans, that's a pretty attractive host. So it's going to jump into us, those ones which are closely related to us, whether it be from bats or pigs or birds or whatever. And, uh, it's, and you know, the virus doesn't want to kill the host. It's not in the interest to kill the host. But while it tries to attain that level of coexistence, it's going to kill them. And a lot of posts are going to die in, in the process. Uh, COVID-19 is just a harbinger of worse things to come. And added to that, on top of that, is the release of pathogens uh, from uh, melting permafrost uh, in the high Arctic. You know, in 2017, a thousand reindeer and one human being died from an anthrax spore that was released uh, from the permafrost. This is going to happen more and more. And the way to address it is to protect ecosystems and to stop the diminishment of species. It's, it's, you know, vaccinations are simply a band-aid to, uh, to the problem. Yeah. And uh, I can tell you right now, within the next 10 years, you're going to see another emerging uh, killer virus uh, that's, uh, that's going to come down, which will probably be even more lethal than, than this one. Yeah. Well, hope, hopefully you're absolutely wrong. <laughs> In fairness, <laughs> I hope you're wrong. Well, you probably well hope, doesn't change, hope doesn't change reality. And uh, the ecological facts of life are right there in front of yeah. us to see. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah. But, I, but rather than rather than wishful thinking, I think that what we need to do is find solutions. Now, yeah. a lot of times people say, well, it's so overwhelming. Uh, it's, it's impossible to find a solution. But my uh, position is that if you want to find an answer to an impossible problem, you look for the impossible solution. And that's possible through the application of passion, imagination, and courage. In 1972, the very idea that Nelson Mandela would be president of South Africa was unthinkable. It was impossible. And yet, 
the impossibility became possible. And I think that holds true to almost every problem that we have to face. We can find the solution, but we have to apply ourselves. And uh, I'm very hopeful of the fact there's so many young people today who are, who are using their passion, their imagination, and their courage to make a difference on so many levels. And one person can make a difference because of David Wingate, a biologist in Bermuda, the Bermuda storm petrel, a little bird, didn't go extinct. Because of Diane Fossey, mountain gorillas still exist in Rwanda. Uh, there's so many people making a difference. And I can't think of anything more noble than the fact that because you intervened, a species was saved or an ecosystem was protected. Um, yeah, I, I had a question re regarding, you know, like a bit beyond protecting the ecosystems or protecting the species. Um, obviously, we're responsible for killing a lot of things. Uh, where we, we've done some some bad shows, um, especially with you know megafauna, we've like mm -hmm. there's a lot of like obviously there's there's big stuff in the ocean still, but on land where we are, we kind of got with the way with it. Do you think there's any any room for the extinction efforts in stopping climate change? Like for example, you brought up the permafrost. There's nothing compressing the permafrost anymore because the mammoths died out over there, so it's not being compressed by anything. So. You know, it's just going to keep getting worse over there. Well, you know, stopping climate change, while well, that ship has sailed, I mean, there's no way stopping it right now. If we stop driving every automobile, flying every airplane, and stop every ship right now, it isn't going to change. It's already started. What we have to find is a way to mitigate and also a way to evolve and uh, adapt. Um, and I think we can do that. Uh, we're going to have to do it. We don't have any choice. But if you look at the levels of carbon dioxide that's rising just this last month, it went well over 415 parts per million, which is the highest it's been for hundreds of thousands of years. If you look at those uh, levels and you go back to the Permian extinction 250 million years ago, the levels were almost the same and rising the same way. Permian extinction wiped out 97% uh, of everything in the ocean, 75% of everything on land. And so that is a possibility that we're facing. How well, we... Wasn't that due to like volcanic activity and that like blocked out it, it all, like, it was nuclear all from winter? The same, it's all from the same thing, volcanic yeah. activity and also the fact that the vast, uh, uh, vast areas of uh, peat and coal, which were ignited and set on fire and burned for literally tens yes. of thousands of yeah. years throughout Siberia. But it's always caused by the same thing, excess carbon. And so what we have to do is find ways to remove that carbon. And the best way to remove that is by uh, a large diversity and abundance of life in the ocean. Nothing removes carbon better than trees and phytoplankton. Uh, the, and the healthier the phytoplankton and forest populations are, the, the you know, if, it was funny. Somebody said, you know, we got to build a machine that can remove carbon from the atmosphere. We have the machine. It's called a tree. <laughs> you know, yeah. We don't need to build some artificial sort of machine to do it. We can do it with trees. Just plant them. But in the but instead, what we're doing is cutting down Amazonia and uh, Indonesian rainforests and on and on, destroying the coral reefs. Uh, this is where we should be focusing our energies, protecting those ecosystems. Yeah. I, I agree absolutely. absolutely. Um, yeah. Are you are you familiar with the efforts of uh, Team Trees? With what? Team Trees. No, not really. But, uh, you know, if, if it's a reforestation uh, effort, there's, uh, there's literally hundreds of those groups and they're very they, doing good work. They, they did something very, very recently. They got like a bunch of like YouTubers or whatever involved in it and they planted well over 20 million trees, hmm. uh, which was like, I seen like someone put that in the scale. Like if they did in one place, it's not that much. But if they did it to like fill in the gaps in like places that are already being deforested, it could do a lot. That kind of stuff, um. But you know, it it is an amazing thing when people get together and they they do stuff like this. You know, the guy who made Team Trees, he's also planned to do something with the ocean in Good. the upcoming years. Because so. the problem is, you just see what you see the ocean, you see water, you see water for miles and nothing underneath. Because you don't go, you don't go underneath very often, and if you do, it's in a very nice area. It, you know where it's it's common, there's warm water. But when you're living like where we are, and yourself included, the water ain't too pretty. Uh, if you stick your head under, it's very cold. So you just look out there like, oh, it's barren wasteland. But like yeah, you, well, you plant a tree outside and you're like, oh, I planted a tree. I did a good thing. But the ocean, mm. like you don't see the work being done. So you might not feel as inclined to do anything about it. Well, the band America once had a song that said, the ocean is a desert with its life underground and the perfect disguise above. Uh, and uh, that's what I know the song all too well. Of course, with no name. That's so good. Such a good song. 
And uh, so that's the reality of it. There, there's the life in the ocean is complex and it's abundant, but it's being diminished. And um, but it, but the life life in the ocean is actually contributes more to our survival than all the life forms on land, as for the production of oxygen, the sequestering of uh, carbon dioxide, uh, and the regulation of climate and temperature. This is all the, in the life support system of the of the ocean. Yeah. Well, it's what we need. But um, did you think that we should just stop and have zero involvement with the ocean, or should we try practice more ethically, like do like do a better job? Like you said, find the impossible solution. Maybe there's a way we can do this right. If we take well, small uh, bits from well-established populations that we let build back up. At the COP21 conference in Paris in 2015, what uh, the resolution I put forward was that uh, if we want to address climate change, then we have to uh, protect the ocean. And the best way to protect the ocean is to leave it alone. Let it give it the time to repair the damage we've caused, and it doesn't take long. Uh, the ocean rebounded in World War One and World War Two because we were too busy killing each other to go after the fish, and they recovered. Uh, but uh, I'd say we need a 50-year moratorium on all corporate industrialized fishing operations. We need to actually permanently shut down these giant factory vessels and and that. Uh, if you want to catch a fish, go out and catch a fish, but. Uh, you know, yeah, you don't need a hundred million dollar loan from a bank to buy yourself a hundred million dollar ship and go out there with uh, with nets so big they can scoop up four houses at a time. Yeah, that, that's the thing I really hate about it. It's it's like when they take take, take away from the average Joe Schmo because of a, a corporation. Like as I was saying beforehand, me and Thomas can't go and like you know dig up peat for the fire. Now, it, like people did it in Ireland for thousands of years, but when the corporate got to it, it was mauled. Um, at the rate they were going. The average Joe Schmo, like me and Thomas, it's taken us another like tens of thousands of years to, to finally mow through it. And in that time, it can build back, even, last even longer. Yeah. But same with fishing. We're doing the same, we're doing the same with water and every other resource. Yeah. Funny enough, I think you're not allowed to gather rainwater here anymore. Uh, I think Irish water owns all water in Ireland. Every drop, all of it. Which is really, really weird. Um, but what, what I'm saying with the fish is like, you know, if you want to go fishing, there's a limit to how much you can catch. But then, like, these these trawlers go out and catch how many? So the limit's being put on us when they're out there, like, wiping the floor with the place. And in addition to the limits, there's also the bycatch from these industries. You know, to catch one kilo of shrimp requires 22 kilos of something else dying. Uh, it's an incredible waste. Mm-hmm. I've seen that with sharks on in, in the trailer for documentary. Oh, it was, like, the most shocking part. It, it was deemed the most shocking part. Um that you know when, when they were you know trying to get normal fish how many shark get caught in and then they just get dumped back in and probably dead before they even hit the water mm-hmm. yeah it's rough yep, it's they just rough. want the fins and they throw all the rest of it away that's true i mean we're always talking about how dangerous sharks are yeah we kill out almost 100 million of them a year how that's, many sharks how many people get crazy. killed every year average five in fact more people die from uh, coke machines falling on them every year which is average nine I don't even know why people go after sharks. I, I had well, it once, fact. and I got violently sick. <laughs> well, shark fins are very popular. You know, fetch a good price in, uh, in places like China. Th- Thomas, when we were in Spain, remember like the breakfast buffet? Yeah. The breakfast buffet had shark on it one day, and I was like, I never had shark. It was like, what, like a small, like a small one, like I think it's called dogfish or something. Yeah, dogfish is the most popular one. Using a lot of yeah. fish and chips in Britain. I've never had that here. Um, I've never had that in, in when I was in London either, but um, I, yeah, it, it is a thing and like jelly deal and stuff. That's rotten. But yeah, like, had shark, not that good. <laughs> Pass. Yeah, but what stuff. they do is they take fish, for instance, like pollock. Pollock is a fish that wasn't caught for a long, long time because it has no taste really. But what they did with that was they discovered that if they uh, take it and they put an artificial scent in it. And then they put a red strip of dye down it. They can sell it as a uh, crab, which they call surimi. So if you go to, say, Seattle, you get a crab salad. It's not really crab. It's just dyed scented uh, pollen. Got it. Got it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's dodgy. How, how do you feel about, like, when they when they farm uh, crustaceans or I guess they fish for crustaceans, like deadliest catch and stuff like that? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, the spider crab was interesting. Nobody ate the spider crab until they changed the name to Alaska king crab. But it's, cool. an, it's a destructive industry. It's not sustainable. 
what you think what do you think's worse like the fishing industry or them because I, I wouldn't know like which population recovers faster or blah 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 which one crabs versus like fish like crustaceans well, versus fish as a whole you'll find that crabs and and lobsters and that their populations will increase as other fish populations go down uh, but then that's just a temporary thing, and then they will begin to crash. I was actually raised in the largest lobster fishing village in the world, St. Andrews, New Brunswick, in eastern Canada. So I've seen the diminishment of the, of the lobster uh, industry over that period of time. When I was a, a, a kid uh, in the 50s, uh, you, the one thing they didn't eat was mussels. Mussels were considered dirty. And now when we go back to my hometown, that's what you get in the restaurant, the mussels. You don't have the clams anymore. You don't have the scallops anymore. Uh, you get muscles because we have, as human beings, we have this incredible ability to adapt to diminishment. As things become diminished, we just accept it and move on. Now, this is something that served us well 30,000 years ago when you had to adapt to diminishment, but now it's actually going to be our undoing. For example, water. 1965, if I were to have told you that, you know, in 20, 30 years, you're going to be buying water in plastic bottles and paying more for that water than the equivalent amount of gasoline, you would have looked at me and said, oh, nobody's going to do that. That's insane. And yet here we are. We've adapted to that diminishment. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> that's rough. Um, yeah. I was in a hotel in New York City one time. There's a bottle of water beside the bed. And I could buy that bottle of water for $12, one liter. And I'm going... $12 for a liter of water in a country where gasoline is like $3 a gallon. In other words, they were charging me $48 a gallon for water. And we just accept that. One, one thing when I was, I was growing up that really freaked me out, especially because they're very like health conscious here, or they because of the high obesity, they started getting health conscious. Was that like, I could, I could buy like these sugary, sugary drinks for less than a euro. So maybe 75 cents. I could like rob my feet away. Wanted a bottle of water. It was like always over a euro, and uh, yeah. you know, you know, when you're young, like you're gonna go for the cheapest option. Like when you're like like eleven, twelve, kind of time, you're gonna grab whatever's cheaper. And uh, yeah. Well, Coca-Cola as a company makes more money selling water than they do selling Coca-Cola. Hmm. What, what what water brand what do they brand? own? Yeah. Oh, uh, Desante is one of them. You know, they have numerous brands. Oh, I didn't even know that. That is very. I know, I know they own like a bunch of other things, but I did. I didn't know about the water, but it makes yeah. sense. Pepsi Cola's in the water business. Nestle's in the water business. It's a weird business to be in, to be honest. Now here's and here's again. And here's how silly it is. New York City, the water that comes out of the tap in New York City is one of the cleanest in the country because it comes from the um, the Allegheny Mountains through stone tunnels into the tap. So very clean water, so clean that they actually bottle it and sell it in Los Angeles as New York City tap water. But if you're in New York City, you go to the store and you buy your bottle of water in your plastic bottle. We've adapted to that diminishment. So we won't even drink the hell, the good water because we've been conditioned that you have to buy your water in plastic bottles. Uh, best water I ever had. Uh, I was in Austria and I was like, one of these like, I guess like rivers up there. I was up, up, up a mountain. We're doing a bit of archery because that, that's what my family does. And there's like snow on the top of these these uh, these mountains that we're on. And I just mm -hmm. see like a stream coming down and I got the, the empty bottle because I, I was dying of thirst because where we were it was roasting. Put it down there. Had a sip. That was the best water I've ever had. Like just literally straight from the mountain, like melting above me. Yeah, uh, yeah not, nothing to match. Nothing to match. And the other problem with water, of course, you know, is uh, 10 years ago, I attended a conference in um, Evian uh, in France. Uh, it was sponsored by the Evian company. And uh, the, the conference was on plastic pollution. And I wasn't too popular because I pointed out that Evian, as a company, produces 100 million plastic bottles a year for water. Where do those bottles all end up? You know, uh, so it's the water companies contribute enormously to plastic pollution problems in the ocean. Reusable ladies. Come on, <laughs> get a reusable one. Yeah. I think I've been rocking this same one since like our, maybe our second or third episode. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I suppose like we're at a point now you, you can cop on, you can figure out, or maybe I'll use like the same thing, like the same kind of bottle or whatever, a reusable one. Well, it's uh, good when, it's good when people do that, but generally they don't. That's yeah. Unfortunately, but like, yeah, sometimes you can end up in a situation where you're like, I don't have my bottle. It's a dollar. Okay, I'm gonna get the water bottle. Okay, I throw it in the bin. Okay, 
I bought three bottles of water, or maybe you're there for a weekend or something. How many bottles of water do you go through? And like they just stuck around. They they, they ain't going away anytime soon. Well, right. One thing that freaked me out was with, with Trash Island. And like, you know, because of like all the netting, it just works as like a perfect mesh to hold everything together, to really make it into a Trash Island. And the mm-hmm. amount of stuff over there, it's, it's seriously bad. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's scary. Like, I don't know, have you ever like, I don't know, I was about to say sailed. Have you ever gone past one of these um these trash islands? What do you mean the jars or the? You mean an artificial trash island or is it? Yeah, that's what I mean. I'm not really sure what you mean. Yeah, that's what I mean. Oh, the ocean jars. Uh, the, there's all this plastic is floating in the ocean. You can't really see it for the most part. It's underwater, but it's uh, it's a, a huge volume of plastic. The real problem in the ocean is microplastics. Not uh, you know your plastic water bottles are one thing, and uh, but it's the microplastics which are choking off the fish and the plankton and that. The uh, particles so small you can hardly see them. One of the sources to, uh, of uh, many sources, but uh, automobiles, every time a car goes down the road, it loses tiny pieces of its uh, rubber, which get washed down into the ocean. And Norway, uh, a study in Norway found that uh, a good percentage of the microplastics came from cars. Uh, so, and a good percentage comes from the fishing industry, especially the heavy gear that's lost all the time. Uh, over the last year, we removed 40 tons of marine fishing marine debris off the uh, Cocos Island, off Costa Rica. We, uh, you know, 50, 60 tons off of Cocos Keeling Island in the Indian Ocean, uh, tons and tons of the stuff off the remote beaches of northern Australia. And uh, so we have these campaigns in the real remote areas, and everywhere we go, we find that. You know, I've, I've removed plastic off the islands in Tonga and uh, Vanuatu and all those places, everywhere you go. And what do you do with the trash you collect? Like, well, we turn out what we do is we ship it off to, uh, to be recycled into... Um, plastic micro, microfibers which are you know for making clothes and everything but it's it's not it's not ideal really we really should be removing plastic from uh, from our ecosystems 100 uh, percent we really need to stop producing it it's a, it's a design flaw it uh, right from the beginning it was uh, you know you're creating something that you can't get rid of and uh, the, the waste problem should have been anticipated decades ago but it, but it wasn't yeah it's uh it's really really bad like even with like glass bottles or so on, okay, maybe you're at a beach, you step on it, you get an old ouchie, but eventually like it breaks down like really easily. Breaks down um, into sand. Yeah. I remember I remember walking the beaches in eastern Canada in the fifties with when you would not find a single spot of plastic at all. There was a world before plastic. It's uh it really has developed since uh, the 60s where all the plastic in the ocean that we see and everywhere it has been manufactured since then it didn't exist before world war ii are you familiar with the um studying being done on on male fertility and how it's going down because of microplastics yeah i've heard about it but it doesn't really that's terrifying it doesn't really concern me much (laughs) anything that's going to reduce human populations uh isn't a bad thing uh, it, should, it should concern a lot of people who ever want to have kids. Yeah, but it's a better, it's a better alternative than wars for uh, diminishing populations. Sure, yeah. But, like, it really, like, you know, lads who, like, wouldn't want to be involved. Like, women are more drawn, in my opinion, to, you know, climate change efforts. Whereas guys are like, eh, they're, like, they're lazy. We're lazy fuckers. Do you tell them, like, that, you know, you know that their junk might not be working anymore because of all the plastic in the ocean? They'll be getting involved. They get seriously involved. Possibly, that that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember I, I was on a walk with a friend yesterday. I told him about that. And, you know, there there he is, like, you like the plastic on his jacket, the plastic on his shoes, the plastic bottle he's drinking out of. And he's like, yeah, <laughs> or like, I don't know. It, it, it's it's a dodgy subject. That's true. Y'all good there? Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That that is one thing that seriously terrifies me, though. Like, you know, you you eat the fish; it's eating that microplastic, and then how does that affect you? Oh no. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not a, a fun image to think about. Um, but yeah. Oh, go on, Dave. No, go on. I was I was gonna say before we let you go, Paul. Um, why don't you like let people know how people can support Sea Shepherd and just what they can do in general? So if they want to check you out too. 
Well, we're very easy to find. Seashepherd.org uh, is our website. And of course, we're on Facebook and all the other social networks just under Seashepherd, S-A-T-P-H-E-R-D. And people can get involved on many levels. People can volunteer to crew on our ships. They can be shore supporters or uh, just be contributing supporters. Uh, we're actually not an organization. We're an international movement. We're in 42 different countries. We're all separate entities working together under the leadership of uh, Shepherd Global, which is based in Amsterdam. And um, but we're 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 a movement where people come to us. You know, we don't spend money on we don't spend money going after you know, advertising door to door and direct mail and everything like that. Uh, we're, we're here to present a, a solution. If people support it, that's fine. Uh, but we're not going to, uh, you know, go spend money to go solicit their support. Absolute power to you. I, I love what you're doing. It takes balls. And uh, I'm, re I'm really glad someone's doing it, to be honest. So, you know, all, all power to you. And I uh, hope people check you out. Take it very okay. seriously. Well, thank you. All right. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Uh, Thanks a lot. Uh, anyone got this far in the episode, fair play to you. Good luck and bye-bye.